episode 100 of Strange Brow Radio. I'm your host, Tobe Johnson, and we've released this episode early. Happy Halloween to all the ghouls and boys out there. Hope you're up to no good. Trick or treat, that whole scene. I think I'll be out at Manresa Castle when this episode comes out, so maybe there'll be some news posted up on Facebook or the strangebrowradio.com site, so stay tuned on that, but we have a real treat for you here in a moment, episode 100, I will be playing a members-only conference that we had this year, I'll tell you more in a second, we'll be right back. Episode 100, Full Moon, Halloween, Thindale, certain sense of responsibility to really bring it for the listener, so I think we've, we've done that. I'm okay with that. I'm just worried about you and the possible knock at the door of a young child without his mask on. That might be the scariest thing in a post-COVID world here. <laughs> So maybe look out the window first and break out the Lysol and the the antibacterial wash before you even think of giving them a treat. Maybe hand out little packets of zinc or something like that. Vitamin D, that'll make them smile. Or just give them a free mask. I don't know what you're going to do. We live out in the woods. And yeah, we get knocks on the on the wall, <laughs> but there's never anybody standing there, so not much we can hand them. But that's not what we're here to discuss, so what do I have for you here? Well, I knew I had to play something pretty damn good, so I better have pretty damn good speakers on here, and I do. And the members have already listened to this. In fact, they've watched it, because it is a, uh, a webinar that we did back, I believe, in... April, March or April of 2020 with retired Colonel John B. Alexander and author Tom Powell. We're talking Skinwalker Ranch and Sasquatch. You know it, you love it, and so let's bring more of it. And that's what we did. Now, I couldn't have done any of this without the producer of then Midnight in the Desert, Michelle Freed, and now the producer for Tim Weisenberg's show Midnight FM, which I believe Shannon LeGros is also co-hosting of Into the Fray. So Michelle, a brilliant producer, brilliant mind, and a well-known and well-resourced and well-worked remote viewer. And we, we did some remote viewing previous with Michelle Freed, so certainly a capable teacher and has worked with... Uh, John B. Alexander and in an unofficial capacity, and that's as much as I know. 
So Michelle is also on the stream with us. Now, this is a segment, a two-hour segment of the video. The entire audio and video can be found for the members only. And at the end of the broadcast, I'll have more to say about that and uh, what's going on after the 31st and how you can find us and all that good stuff. But happy Halloween, wherever you are. Let's uh, get to it. Skinwalker Ranch is how we begin, and we end up in a mishmash of uh, Sasquatch and parallel worlds with Tom Powell. We're going to go ahead and get started here, and along the way, people that join into the chat, um, join into the audience, thanks for coming to our first real Zoom meeting, organized Zoom meeting Um with Strange Brow Radio and the Butterfly Effects Center. Today, of course, we're going to be talking about uh, something incredibly popular to an audience that looks at this is the Skinwalker Ranch. And we have retired Colonel and Dr. John B. Alexander, as well as author Tom Powell. And if you don't know Tom Powell's work, I uh, strongly suggest you look it up. You can find that uh, all over the interweb under the name Tom Powell, T-H-O-M-P-O-W-E-L-L, and that will be towards the second and third hour. So without further ado, um, thanks for being with us, John. Thanks for having me. You bet. So rather than this be a typical interview, which is the way I usually do a show, is a back and forth with somebody, since we have PowerPoints, and everybody, give me the thumbs up or let me know if you have any kind of issues seeing what uh, the presenters are talking about along the way here. You can message me. But uh, I'm going to step back as much as I can stand and um, let you guys have the floor. And um, without further ado, unless anybody has any words uh, in the beginning here, Michelle, are you ready to go? I am ready. I am so excited and so glad that everybody is joining us Um uh, this is a, a great idea for, um, you know, replacing conferences that we can't get to mm-hmm. and um, and still getting to, it's incredible uh, having this kind of technology where we can still hear from, you know, people that we want to hear from. And uh, hopefully we will continue to do this. And we would love if you guys spread the word mm-hmm. so we can continue doing this. Perfect. And, of course, um, along the way here, guys, if you have any questions for me, you can shoot me a chat, as we said here. And if you have any questions for the speakers, uh, shoot me a chat as well. And towards the end, I will get to that. But uh, without further ado, go ahead, Colonel. Hey, have you got the screen? We see the screen. I I see it. Okay. I I can't tell because I have it up. Uh, yeah, great to be here. I uh, hate to say it, but uh, I think I'd rather be close to be leaving to sail on the Caribbean today. So it was <laughs> one of the trips that uh, got canceled. So anyway, we got asked to, I thought I would uh, begin with is. Uh, I think I just lost John. Okay, John. Now, hold on a second here. Um, I'm thinking your that signal's maybe... a little bit spotty, John, so start over again, and um, 
Take it from the top after the Caribbean. Excuse me one second. Um, let's turn off the cameras while John's speaking because that uses bandwidth. Okay, let's go for so, that. Okay. Good idea. That's a Toby thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're ready. Yeah, that, you, might, you might have a point there. safe, I guess we would say. Um, this slide that's up at the moment is one that I use in all of my presentations to show what uh, my biases are. And having studied all of these phenomena, if you'll notice, of course, remote viewing IAMS is the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Um, I was past president on that. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the head of my doctoral committee, and he and um, Raymond Moody were the ones who brought forth the whole topic of uh, near-death experiences. Um, on there, you can see a, a shaman. We've dealt with shamans all over the world. In fact, recently back from uh, uh, Central Asia, which was uh, quite an interesting experience. Uh, PK, the metal bending things, as you know, we used to teach uh, PK metal bending for all uh, um, the dolphin indicates interspecies communication, did some interesting work with dolphins and later with uh, humpback whales in the uh, open ocean off of Tonga, fire walking, we did that, UFOs, of course, spontaneous healing. And I say even this, talking about cryptozoology, which is going to be a main focus uh, in the later part of the presentation. And we may join and say one of the interesting experiences we uh, have one of the things that you here lost John and with shamans I've talked in a, um, uh, Iquitos, Peru several times the international uh, Amazonian shamans conference and of course remote viewing and that smiling with me is of course Joe McMonigle. Now what I find amazing is how many of these groups are just isolated and they don't know about the other groups or understand the interconnectedness of it. I do think these are the Bigelow and was established in 1995 and he wanted to talk about or study two specific areas. Uh, one of them was uh, UFOs of course and the other was life after death or what I prefer as a continuation of consciousness and that ran until 2004. Now, I was the first uh, member of NEDS, but I was only part-time. I had already retired twice from the Army. And so
can't uh, keep up with that. So uh, I work with them part-time. I had left, um, I think around 2001, because uh, by 2003, I'd been in uh, Afghanistan. Now, uh, one of the key things about NIDS, uh, this is the Science Advisory Board. I won't go through all the people uh, that are, are on there. Uh, that's me hiding uh, right there. Some of you know, off, of course and uh, a number of others. But the point is that these were all, you know, basically world-class scientists. And the interesting aspect was that they were all open-minded. Uh, many of them did not choose to be known uh, to the outside world, really be exposed. The list has since uh, been put up uh, of all of these members. But the, the idea was that NID staff, that I'll get to in a minute, <clears throat> would go out and study a variety of projects. And about quarterly, uh, the group would uh, come together and have various presentations on the observations that uh, had taken place. Uh, this is the, um, the, the main people. There were a few more from time to time. Um, the uh, upper left is Colin Kelleher, who was the uh, administrator, or I guess technically the deputy administrator. Bob held the tech, the job lower center was with uh, one that was with me and uh, Jacques Vallée and uh, George was uh, actually a double doctorate and uh, but a DVM or doctor of veterinarian medicine which we'll see is significant with uh, some of the things that we'll be discussing shortly. So we're going to talk about the ranch and I just yeah, I, often I use this as a single slide, uh, whatever a skinwalker is. I would mention that during the entire time I was there, we were discussing it, never heard it called Skinwalker Ranch. That is a kind of a, a name that got picked up later and uh, came along. Yeah. It was the Sherman Ranch, right? Well, for a long time, yes, when Robert Bigelow bought the ranch, uh, from Terry Sherman, uh, while you know Terry's name, Terry and Gwen were not known uh, to the public, and in fact, in the book *The Hunt for the Skinwalker*, you'll see that there's—I think they call him Gorman—in uh, that book. But it was the Sherman Ranch, and he had had it uh, previously. Uh, but the point is, and we'll discuss uh, as much you want, but very, very, very strange things uh, happened uh, at the ranch. And some of them were related to UFOs. Now, uh, just for, tell folks where you are up on the location, it's not the exact location of where it is, but again, you're looking at the uh, state of Utah it's over kind of on the northeast side. You'll see Vernal and Roosevelt, which is not uh, not on the map, which I think is around in here. So it'd be somewhere around in, in this area. Um, 
recommend you don't go, but if you ever want to see a neat place, you see the uh, uh, Dinosaur National Monument, uh, really quite a fascinating place that happens to be uh, in the area. So been fun. So when we were there, this is the and this is uh, looking to the uh, to the south and what you see of course is very very flat terrain and then you have an escarpment or mesa that goes up uh, 100 200 feet something like that and that runs along the whole north and then farther to the north you can see the other mountains in uh, Utah but the ranch stops a little bit beyond uh, the the top of the ranch uh, or the top of the mesa closer you can also see the um, the house in there I'm not sure who took uh, these uh, I will mention and of course, I'll come to George Knapp in there, but I owe him a debt of gratitude because, frankly, I can't find a number of my pictures, and he was able to provide a number of them uh, to me. Uh, again, this is uh, this was there when I was there, but you know the fencing, but it gives you the you see the scrub stuff, and out here a lot of Russian uh, uh, olives that are there. Uh, this is the uh, old home. When, when the Bob uh, bought the ranch initially, this building uh, on the left side of your screen uh, was the only thing that was there that was currently in use. And there were a number of things that were really quite strange. And Terry had bought this building from a previous owner as well. And they noticed that there were locks on the inside, locks on the outside. Uh, there were uh, big chain uh, links out there where they would chain, uh, the previous owner would chain dogs uh, to be able to protect the entranceway. Uh, what you see to the right side uh, of the screen there is a, basically it's a double wide trailer and that's what uh, Bigelow brought in and that uh, everything was operated from. We had cameras that were uh, looking 24 seven, doing time-lapse photography. Everything came back under the ground and into uh, that uh, trailer there. There was also uh, bedrooms where the staff would stay when, when we were up there. Uh, again, this is some pictures of, there's several old buildings that are off to the uh, west side uh, of the ranch and you can see this in high trees and uh, this is obviously in the fall uh, but uh, he had these old dilapidated buildings and a number of very unusual incidents happened uh, around those uh, buildings. Uh, here's a picture it's obviously one George gave me uh, and uh, this is uh, Colin Kelleher again. Uh, again, lots of 
kind of key. This is about in the center of the ranch itself. And what's interesting, there'll be a, a, one of the tales I'll talk about, an incident that uh, happened uh, through basically the treetops uh, here. Uh, this is just a photo of the full moon uh, at uh, the ranch itself. And um, this is yet another building uh, that's out there. Again, this is, a, I think they call it the, the third homestead now, out further than the rest. And what you can see is this is relatively close to the uh, uh, escarpment that's up. And a number of the observations we had, we would set up there at night. Uh, I might mention that um, I was actually with Bob uh, Bigelow the day that he bought the ranch. And I was the first one to uh, spend a night there. And that's what I had done is I had sat up on the top um, of the ranch there looking down. And basically the main thing that happened was a lot of mosquito bites. Uh, at least that particular night. One of the things that uh, as we evolved on there, decided that uh, we would like to get some live sensors because it did appear that a number of the incidents that happened, the animals uh, in the area were sensitive to something. So what they did is put uh, these uh, towers here with them and they, this is a dog kennel and they kept them in there, but it was also the uh, cameras were placed so you could see them happening. Uh, in the, these things, we would put um, uh, basically toys, games, and things like that up there to see if they would be uh, disturbed. Some of this is all of what you saw, if you're any, or familiar with the role of Missouri uh, cases that uh, went on to see if things would be uh, perturbated. I think one of the things that's uh, interesting and, and important is that the ranch has always been a working ranch. Um, so, you know, at the time, even when NIDS had it, there were always cattle there and uh, meandering, you know, on their own as to they, they could move any place that they wanted to uh, on the ranch. But these were fixed sites where we could keep, uh, of course, many of the things happened off camera and there were some things that happened on camera, but this was done so that we could ensure that uh, the animals would be, the dogs in this case, would be on, on camera. Uh, what year were you doing this? Well, again, I'm from, I bought it in 96, so through, well, I don't know, again, it's okay. picked up, so it's ongoing Late, late 90s, late 90s on. Okay. No, that was the beginning, yeah, oh, okay. 96. Got it. Then I'll start uh, with this case, a little gruesome picture on there, but it's one of the most fascinating cases in my mind when you get into physical evidence of things happening. And what had happened, this is a uh, May morning and it's calving season. And so Terry goes out, but as you've seen, the area is very flat. Uh, it's just flat open area, except for the escarpment uh, to the north. And so he's driving out and 
calving season, he runs around, uh, finds the calf, takes the calf, do a tag it in the ear to identify it to the mother. And they tag it and weigh it and whatnot. So he then leaves and goes uh, about two, 300 yards away. Again, perfectly open, mid-morning, bright, sunny day, as you can tell. And finds a second calf. Uh, and he tags that and he weighs it. And the elapsed time is about 45 minutes. He comes back and he finds this calf in the condition that you see here. Uh, you know, almost all the body parts are missing. One of the, it's also exsanguinated. And uh, what, you, what you don't see there is a lot of blood. And that was quite amazing because people said, told us, okay, well, what probably happened is that the bloods went into the dirt. And uh, our George O'Net, the DVM that, that I had mentioned earlier, was, was flown out of the scene within there, got there in a few hours. Uh, by the way, as soon as this was found, Terry covered it to protect it so no other predation uh, could take place. Um, also, for as you can see, this the ear here where the tag had been on was sliced off and is and again, again, you have forty five minutes wide open area, you look at predation. Yes, there are big cats uh, in the area, rare, but they are there, there are bears, uh, <clears throat> but no animal attacks and kills in this moment. Uh, uh, most of them, will, if they make a kill, will drag the animal off and the carcass and hide it and come back and uh, eat her. But not figure out how this one of the uh, hypotheses that keep going. Well, this was uh, you know human in intervention. Um, they, they shoot cattle rustlers. <laughs> this that that this is going to happen in broad daylight, and humans are going to somehow sneak across this open field to do this. Just makes no sense. Now, if you want, in the really bizarre. You know, of course, this was case was presented to the uh, science board, and we looked at it in considerable detail. Best you can come up with is the things that happened to the animal did not happen at that location. It happened someplace else, and animal was returned. But again, when you have this very short period of time during which that could have occurred. Um, one of the things I wrote about in a couple of books that I came up with uh, in looking at this was something that they called precognitive sentient phenomena. And that was at the ranch, and we'll talk about some of the other things that happened uh, shortly. Um, it was as if the it, and I do not know how to describe whatever it is. Um, but that it was, in, when I say it's precognitive, it meant that whatever this is, is doing, presenting these phenomena, 
knew how we were aware of the research efforts before the incident occurred. And then everything would happen as you would gear up to study these phenomena. It would say, oh, you like that? Try this. And you get something that's, you know, like completely different and uh, unpredictable. And yes, there were uh, playful aspects to it. Again, the, the, the biggest thing is that it, whatever it is, is sentient and is in control. Now, this is not totally new. Um, and I've used uh, some of the examples here because throughout uh, human mythology, you find the notion of the trickster or trickster gods. And I use the examples here. You have Loki of, with the North Guards, uh, Coco Pele and uh, Navajo, Pan in Greek. But again, whatever it is, it's running the show. You are. Quetzalcoatl is another one from the Mayan. Uh, well, like I said, it is universal. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, this has changed a bit. Uh, when I say don't go there, this is what the entrance looks like today. A friend of mine uh, happened to stop by, and this is the outer area. You can see back farther where the, where the, the other fences uh, kick in. Um, there are a number of interviews that are uh, online now that you can interview. I saw one lengthy one with uh, Tom Winterton, who is now the uh, manager uh, of the ranch. I guess superintendent's technical title. And what they point out is that the new owner has taken the work that was done with by NIDS and moved it actually to a new level. The, the kind of instrumentation that's available there. Uh, and there, they also have a number of experiments that are out there. And one of the reasons they do not want people coming on board uh, into the area is you could inadvertently uh, end up disturbing experiments, not realizing where instrumentation is or the kinds of things that are uh, the scientific experiments uh, that are ongoing at the time, uh, the warning on it is that, um, you know, not, not just cited, but uh, you, you disrupt uh, ongoing incidents and, um, you know, yeah, you may end up paying for it. They'll bring them. And uh, here's an example of the security. Uh, Talk to Brandon about it. He seems to be quite excited. I'm assuming he has already seen, I think, a six part series. Uh, I declined uh, to participate, but um, he did uh, say, and I, I'm not sure exactly what they caught, but they actually did uh, capture some phenomena on camera. So that'll be a part of what would encourage folks to watch this, this series as it evolves. Um, a couple of 
books here. First, uh, my book, Reality, and I most of them, and the first chapter uh, deals entirely with uh, Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, the rest of it, and you can see the uh, subtitle, deals with things we did all over the world. It's a first-hand experience with things that can't happen, but did. And for those who know PK and that, of course, Uri Geller was uh, gracious enough to give me a forward uh, on that. Uh, and another book that has probably even more detail much earlier was by uh, Colin Kelleher and George Knapp uh, and is called The Hunt for the Skinwalker. And there's other uh, documentaries that, that are out on there, but these books are available and will give you quite a bit of detail on some of the cases. Uh, let me do the stop share here. And hey, John, we can uh, we can see maybe you're ending your PowerPoint at this point, but we can't hear you. Could be that somebody yeah, at his I'm house. Assuming that most of the um, uh, audience here are familiar with what skinwalkers are. Um, as I said, it was not. Skinwalker Ranch while, while we were there. And it has a long, long history of unusual events going back decades to hundreds of years. Um, there is some mythology that said that um, there, were, there are both Ute and Indian, uh, sorry, Navajo tribes uh, in the area. And they had some uh, land disputes and that the area became uh, cursed, uh, if you will. We do know that Native Americans tend to stay away. This was known as a, not an area to, uh, to go to and they would generally stay away from it. Uh, the skinwalker itself is, of course, uh, mythology. And the question is, you know, where, where does mythology become real? Um, the uh, skinwalker is a, it's kind of hard to describe, it has many dis different uh, attributes, but that it's a beast, uh, some say it's a shapeshifter, that it be, can become different types of animals uh, over time, uh, that it particularly prowls at night, uh, that it uh, can, you know, devour humans and do bad things and definitely something that one wants to stay away from. Uh, I might mention that many of the people up there have mentioned that during incidents that they have, the, this notion of fear, even though sometimes it's not physically present, you're not looking at something, but still the, the presence of fear has uh, taken uh, over them. Um, it was an interesting comment when we were warming up that uh, I you hitchhikers, I guess you called it, uh, because that was one of the things that uh, has come up re repeatedly. Um, I, I might mention I've never had personally uh, a negative experience. One of the things I think that I did notice is that certain people tend to be more sensitive to the events that are ongoing there. In our case, uh, I think it was Eric Davis who was the, the most sensitive uh, to that. 
Uh, I mentioned uh, in there was a picture of trees and people, you know, in, in the high trees. There was a particular incident that happened. I'll recall them and Eric were out near the center of the ranch itself. And uh, while they're there, if you've seen the movie Predator, it said it was like something was moving through the trees where you would see a, a distortion, but nothing clear. It's not like a clearly defined animal or something that would be moving uh, through the treetops in some way. This was at night. And Eric is the one who got the uh, impression, a distinct impression of a voice talking to him and said, we are watching you. And he's one who several times back at the, the uh, trailer and whatnot would be sensitive to things being around, often not seen. Um, I don't know, where, where would you like to go? Would you like some of the incidents or uh, questions or what? Right, yes, absolutely. Um, well, specifically, I want to go to a comment that you made to Jesse Ventura when he uh, came out to the ranch, which I imagine was quite humorous. And one of the things I think you said to him is that he would be quite bored. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite an experience. Uh, it was very interesting. I'll back up just a little bit. First of all, um, the reason I agreed to the interview had nothing to do with Skinwalker Ranch. Um, this is kind of a, a warning about uh, what t or, uh, program producers will do to you. But uh, what had happened is they said they wanted to talk about uh, civilians in space. And by this time, uh, Bob had created Bigelow Aerospace, uh, which made sense. And also Bert Rutan, who was a legendary aviator, was a good friend of mine. He's the guy who put Mike Melville uh, into space and won the X Prize and whatnot. Uh, so that they wanted to talk about that was uh, fine. So anyway, they came and we interviewed for a couple of hours. And um, so uh, at the end, one of the PAs calls in from the side, well, what about the Skinwalker Ranch? Now, it's interesting, I'm responding to some of the comments. People said it looked like I was scared because I was getting up. Now, I thought the interview was over and I was reaching behind to take off the mic pack at the time. I wasn't afraid of it. And so the comment to him was, well, I thought we agreed not to talk about that because we had talked about what we would and would not discuss uh, before the show. So this guy pops it uh, live. And uh, I said, well, I think the quote was something like, uh, you know, what would you say if there were aliens there uh, working for Bigelow? And I'd say, well, your bullshit filter doesn't work very well. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, Jesse, well, I, what, what if we go up there? And I think one of the important thing is, particularly for people who go up and observe, a vast percentage of the time, absolutely nothing happens. Now, that does not negate that these very, very strange things happen. And some of the things that happen to us and are continuing, and when you stack up these events and you look at them in, in a short period of, as if it happened a short period of time, you go like, wow, this, this must be really exciting. Um, as opposed to all of the incidents, and we can discuss uh, some of them that happened. They absolutely did happen. 
but they're spread out over years. Uh, so I was talking to Jesse that, you know, hey, you think you're going to go up and jump on the ranch and, you know, a goblin's going to jump out and grab you or whatever. Uh, that's probably not going to happen. And so I told him, yep, you, you would be bored. Another question here has to do a little bit with uh, remote viewing and, and deep meditation as far as seeing source. Um, what has been done in that way and what is being done in that way, especially with the new ranch owner? Um, I can't speak to what the new ranch owner has done in that vein. Uh, Joe McMonigle uh, was up at the ranch. I mentioned you know, his remote viewers 001 uh, did uh, some the, uh, things for Bob. Um, I don't recall of anything totally significant, and certainly not anything that would initiate, say, causal cause and effect, which is obviously what we're looking like. What's doing this? How do we get involved and how can we control these things? Um, but uh, yeah, no, a number of people have meditated on it and um, uh, it does not seem to either change the type of event uh, or come up with any kinds of uh, definitive answers as to you know what's causing these uh, strange events um might be useful to talk about some of the incidents that we did see now i, I mentioned two um one of course is that calf and that's one with we have a lot of physical evidence uh, that uh, substantiates that something very very strange happened and you cannot explain it with any prosaic uh, answer. Um, one that also had a lot of physical evidence, as I mentioned, the ranch is set up to be instrumented uh, and time-lapse photography. What we had were poles that were about 20 feet high, uh, you know, TV cameras sitting on, on top of the poles, and they were looking to the west. And as it turns out, we had cameras that are out here and cameras are behind. So camera one is looking at camera two. Now there are a number of cameras like that, but for this particular thing. Now, so the camera is up on top of the pole. It's wired in and then the wires come down and there's about half a roll of duct tape on each one of those. And it comes down to PVC, uh, pipe and then it goes underground and back to the uh, trailer where, where the, it's being recorded. And then what would happen is we weren't always there, but the, the cameras, the, the recording would always be viewed. And it was, uh, by the way, there was about a second or third between frames, just so you know what the time frame is, which is uh, sort of uh, important. But in this one particular incident, what happens is that uh, all of a sudden, a camera, the, the wire is going into the camera, pulled out, what's coming down, the duct tape that I mentioned is missing. It is totally gone. Now, anybody who's worked with duct tape knows that stuff is really sticky and you know, very adhesive and getting rid of it is, is difficult. 
the there were PVC U clamps holding the thing in before it went into the ground. Those are pulled loose. In the middle, there is a chunk of about three foot chunk of wires that are just totally cut and been missing. Uh, as it turns out, the incident occurred at a time when the cattle happened to be right around the pole where the incident happened. Now that's significant because the cattle don't move. And what we do know is if anybody approaches the cows, they would scatter and, and run away. So we know when the incident occurred because that's when the TV feed stopped. So you know exactly when at least part of it happened. Um, and the point is that the camera one that was looking at camera two, nothing there. And so if you think all of that stuff would have to have happened if it's happening in physical reality as we know it, within a second or third with no people, nothing disturbing the uh, animals in the area and absolutely physically happened. I mean, this is in the really totally bizarre, but one way you have, you know, physical manifestation of uh, incidents happen. Uh, the one that I've mentioned out in the um, uh, tree area, okay, that's, potentially subjective because it's, you know, what's the sensing of the individuals of this thing moving through the trees and, and things like that. But you have these other incidents where it's physically hard. Now, another one that happened that, uh, again, with our people involved, and again, we're talking about scientists here, you know, all PhD level trained observers and whatnot. Um, it was in the winter and they, went outside uh, at night looking around and Terry uh, was there at the time. And to the east side, uh, they see some cattle down there and he's shining a light and up in this tree, uh, the eyes are looking, shining back. You know how red eyes and the light hits and they're pretty far apart. So whatever it is up there is big and one of his cattle were down below. So he gets his rifle out, pretty damn good shot, and this is a very short distance, fires at whatever that is. It drops out of the tree, or at least the lights go out and disappear, and disappears. When we look, there's no tracks, but a tracker in. One of the most interesting things is there's a snowbank that was there again, it was winter enough. And what you see is a single footprint that looked like a gigantic raptor uh, all of the lost world or <laughs> yeah, something of that nature. Found the one track and that's it. So you had the incident, we had Terry, one of our observers physically shooting something, a physical footprint and just disappears. And in a number of these, that's one of the things that happens, just disappears. And it wasn't there. Another question here. We have loads of questions too. And along the way, Tom, if uh, you want to chime in as well, um, I'll squeeze one more in here. Um, Kevin Carney asks, is there any method or methodology 
you have found to trigger an event, would you advise triggering an event? Short answer, no. And uh, the events seem to be controlled by it. Now, one of the things that uh, came up was that you were told not to dig on the ranch. And I've heard uh, that this has been followed up with the, the current owners as well. But you would come in, we would try to precipitate events and it basically didn't work. Uh, whatever was going to happen, happened at the behest of, I guess it's precognitive sentient phenomena. The phenomena is in charge and it decides what you're going to see, when you're going to see it, and knows how you're going to respond to it. Um, but we did, I mean, there were, that's why people would do meditation, we would do you know, cleansing ceremonies, you would do a whole host of things, uh, but you, we never were able to precipitate events, but we were certainly uh, observed them. And um, we've only had a few of the, you know, truly bizarre ones. Um, one that happened before we arranged, I think is really uh, quite key. Um, and, uh, Terry is out. This is the only uh, the house that's there is the one that we showed earlier. That he was living uh, in that house, and they were just getting started again. This whole series of incidents that were happening, minor stuff like uh, uh, they would go in and put the groceries away, and come back, and all of a sudden the groceries are back on the table again. Uh, he would take his gloves and put them down, and he'd find them, you know, up in a tree when he walked. But anyway, he sees this dog walking across the phone. And as it gets closer and closer, they realize that's not a dog, it's a wolf. And as it gets even closer, they say, that's a really big wolf. Now, Terry was a big guy, and well over six feet, and wolf's head comes up, you know, like up into his chest. And so they're just petting the wolf and said, well, this has got to be domesticated somehow. So uh, they get tired of that. They get, got to go back to work. And when they did, they had a corral uh, that was there. And, you know, it has a round, heavy piping. And there was a couple of cattle in there and a calf. And all of a sudden, they hear this yowling sound. And the wolf has reached under the uh, fencing and grabbed a 600 pound calf by the snout and is trying to pull it away. Um, so Carrie grabs a two by four that's there they're building and whacks at it. And that basically does nothing. So he's got, I believe it's a 357 Magnum that he pulls out and at point blank range, shoots him in the side, in the thoracic area where the heart would be. Uh, that convinces whatever this beast is, the wolf, to let go of the calf. And it goes walking off. And as it does, he's got an elk rifle. Uh, you know, ranchers there keep those about, I think it was 258 grain bullets. Puts it in there and he hits the uh, wolf as it's wandering away, and chunks of stuff fly off the wolf. 
but it goes over down into a ravine and just totally disappears. So they went and they tracked it. And, you know, the tracks go out there and all of a sudden the tracks just stop. But also importantly is they go over and they pick up the residue from the wolf that's been, you know, removed by the bullet and it's putrefied or it smells as if it's putrefied. Now, how, how that would happen in a few minutes, we, you know, again, no logical explanation uh, for that. More questions here regarding um, underground bases. Is there any evidence that there was a facility underground near the ranch? No. 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 How <laughs> uh, are you from that Dugway proving ground? Oh, hundreds of miles. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, we are on the east side of uh, Utah. Uh, mm -hmm. All the way across the state. Cylindrical holes found on uh, the ranch as well. Was this part of the phenomena? Don't know of cylindrical holes. Okay. Now, one of the things to remember, and this is true for the folks that are out there, um, there's an awful lot of mythology that's been brought up. And the BS factor, like I told. Uh, you know, Jesse is extraordinarily high as to what happens and uh, all of that. <clears throat> I, I should mention, uh, you know, since UFOs are part of it, UFOs have been seen in the area periodically. Um, earlier, I think you mentioned orbs, and orbs get to be kind of a, a key factor. And in fact, one of the reasons that I believe Terry says that he sold uh, the ranch and what had happened, uh, particularly so it was uh, one evening, um, they're out there and they see these blue orbs coming down and uh, just above kind of head level. And says the dogs, he had three dogs at the time and they were up yapping, you know, trying to bite at the uh, thing. And it kept moving further and further east and the dogs kept going with it. Uh, over towards the Garcia Ranch, which is immediately east of um, what was in the Sherman Ranch. And the dogs never come back. And, and that's unu highly unusual. Normally they would, you know, they would go off, but they would re return uh, you know, quite readily. And uh, they didn't. And so he went out looking and what he found was three little greasy spots, which he believes to be the uh, the dogs, the residue from the dogs. Um, and what concerned him at the time is they had teenage boys that uh, were having it and that uh, the, um, they were concerned that, uh, you know, the boys might do something to agitate whatever was coming with the bulbs and, uh, you know, said, no, that's enough, we're, we're out. Regarding the uh, putrefied meat from the, the giant dog that was killed, was any sample collected and what became of the, the sample if it was? No, we, no, as far as I know, no, no. Uh, remember, this had happened before uh, uh, Bob Bigelow had acquired the ranch. So it's one of the stories. I will tell you, though, because people come and I was Terry's just making this up and all that. Uh, we emphatically believe him. 
and we had enough incidents with him. And I think the guy is absolutely uh, straight, the family the same way. Some people say, well, you're doing it for fame. That, that's ridiculous. Uh, he physically lost a lot. Of One of the things he found was in the, some of the cattle mutilations and things that happened. He had a variety of cattle, and it would always happen to his most expensive uh, cattle. Can't, can't explain that. Uh, but think the guy is absolutely honest, and I say enough of the incidents occurred with our folks as well. Um, and overall, uh, very detrimental uh, to them, uh, to the family. Getting back to the mythos, here, John, regarding one of the stories that came out is maybe the most odd of them all regarding two hybrid men, part human, part animal, part dog, I think, smoking cigarettes uh, up against a car wearing fedoras. Do you know this story and can tell us more about no, this? I, do not. I, I don't. I'm, first time I've heard that one. Oh, really? Okay. Now, now wait a second. Yeah. Tom, have you heard this? Nope. Okay. Well, I'm all alone. Anybody online, uh, don't leave me hanging. That that was a story that snuck out of there. But well, again, remember that there's an awful lot of mythology and things that have changed uh, over time. Uh, mm -hmm. The reality is strange enough, but uh, and that's one of the problems you have in all of these fields that trying to sort fact from fiction, and you get second, third hand. Uh, iteration on the stories. Um, yeah, yes, I think it's in the book, and it's part of George Knapp's uh, story within the book. So I think that's where I got it. That's what I'm hearing too from other people. Um, another question that came in is: Did anybody die, lose their mind, or disappear at the ranch? No, not that I know of. Um, yeah, uh, I have heard. In fact, uh, this. Uh, superintendent who was there um, apparently had a life-threatening injury of some sort. I'm not, uh, I've heard the story from several aspects, including him. He has, I, I wouldn't mention it except he has personally put it uh, online as well. And um, why life-threatening, I don't know, but ended up hospitalized for a period of time. And they said part of the problem was that in the hospital doing laboratory tests, they could not determine what uh, had caused it. And uh, other than whatever it was, was real is one of these uh, unexplained illnesses, but very, very serious. I uh, have not heard of anybody losing their mind. I have heard of people, um, which you call the hitchhiker, I mentioned before, that uh, uh, you know, have, have supposedly taken things home with them that they, they didn't want to have follow them. I mentioned we had, it was one of the questions Colin asked me, we were in uh, Conateba in Brazil and had some very strange experiences there. And one of his questions to me was, well, did, did anything come home? That's one where Victoria uh, literally became possessed in front of uh, several hundred folks. Uh, but um, that, that, that is one of the concerns. Um, and I might mention, I've talked to Colm about it, that they've been very conscientious about doing cleansing 
uh, type exercises to themselves, you know, when they're operating in the area and leaving it. We have a couple of questions here regarding um, cemeteries or burial grounds on or near the ranch. Was that ever something that was looked into? Not that I'm familiar with. Okay. And then getting back to the underground base concept, um, in the world of Bigfoot, we often, uh, you know, take experiencers' testimony that uh, explain there to be some kind of underground activity or machine work. Um, it was reported uh, nearby, in one, for example, in the town of Ording, underneath the story of the Valley of the Skookum by Sally Shepard Walford, where she described having Bigfoot activity, but also hearing drilling or underground mechanics. Uh, what about there at the ranch? Again, nothing underground that I have any knowledge of. Um, no, I, well, I get into theories about what had happened and particularly get into the cryptozoology range. And uh, my personal opinion, this may be something Tom wants to address uh, now or, or later, but when I said that, I'm not sure when you say, where did they go? That's even a useful question that I think we're looking at things that have, you know, that exist temporally within our area and then cease to exist in consensus reality as we know it. And I'll, I'll, let me give you one case that happened. This one's uh, pretty well known. Again, our guys remember that uh, Mesa that I talked about. So they're up on the Mesa looking down at a dirt road and, and what happens is they're getting ready to leave. They have some, we were using third gen night vision equipment at the time. And they see this glowing spot that's about three feet above the road. And it comes up and it starts expanding and expanding and expanding. And then all of a sudden, from it looks like a tunnel inside, this thing comes up, puts his hand and pulls up head and shoulders, comes up out of the tunnel, jumps down, the light disappears, it goes running off. You go down there and there's no footprints. And this is a dusty road where you would normally expect uh, to find it. And yet it happened again in front of our observers. All right. Uh Tom, I don't want to step all over you. You're just kind of leaning back and enjoying this. Uh, have somebody else doing the heavy lifting. You got any questions? I've got tons of questions here, but I want to come back to you. Uh, well, I maybe could delve into some specifics, but in a general way, uh, the kinds of things that I've experienced over the years pretty closely mirrors what John's describing. So uh, I'm, I, I don't want to be uh, a simple yes man to John's point of view, but, but there is a lot of consistency uh, to my experiences and John's. So I could get into details, but uh, only after John has finished Hands making over. his point. Okay, let me go back to a question here. We'll go to Reba Campbell. She asked a question to the UFO incidents. What is the military's thought of saucer-type UFO purpose here on Earth gleaned at the ranch? I guess they know very well that there is a study and money spent that way uh, through Harry Reid. Second question, is there some truth 
to the OT references based on activity on the ranch. So the question is, I guess, basically, what do we know as far as UFO activity at the ranch as far as purpose? Purpose, again, I get back to the precognoscent phenomena. We haven't the foggiest idea. Uh, I might mention in my UFO book, uh, uh, I'll have to paraphrase, I don't have it here, but the last paragraph goes, uh, it starts out with UFOs are absolutely real, there's no doubt about it. And I end by saying, whatever this is, it is more complex than we imagine or than we possibly can imagine. And again, one of the problems that I have, this is why the, the second slide, remember with all the different phenomena, um, these things are interrelated in, in my view. Um, I keep getting reminded of a song that goes, I, I tried to find the reason why and the reason wasn't why. And so finding the rationale for things that are totally irrational is, is uh, extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I, I, that's what I argue is that we are dealing with something that is, um, again, research perspective. You, you had mentioned earlier a large hadron collider and whatnot with the research there. I think we're looking at something that's at least as complex as cancer or AIDS. And yet our approach to it is pretty naive and trying to understand uh, these things that are just terribly, terribly complex and universal and, you know, all, all societies, all cultures and around for millennia. Regarding the portals themselves, was there any understanding at what portals are besides a visual experience where things can pass in and out of short answer is understanding no Uh, potential for existence yes a portal is kind of one of the problems we have is applying linguistics you know finding a vocabulary to describe the ineffable and this is true again, and I think in all of these uh, phenomena, uh, we try to attach values to things that we know uh, to areas that are not known. One of the theories too, and I'd love to have Tom speak out on this as well, regarding um, individuals that seem to spike activity uh, you know, being involved with this over the last 15 years, it seemed as though there were certain people that would come to places or people that would pair up where they would amp up their antenna and their experiences with that individual. Did that happen at the ranch? Yeah, I I mentioned that earlier uh, that, uh, again, I, I can't say anything super strange happened during the periods that, that I was there. Uh, but again, the one, Eric seemed to be more sensitive to these kinds of things than uh, some of the other people. But I absolutely agree. Um, again, I'll bring my wife, uh, Victoria, into this as we travel the world dealing with shamans, and particularly in uh, with shamans in ayahuasca and whatnot. But, we have very physical phenomena that she's totally sensitive to, but for me, it's just, you know, that's interesting. All right, Tom, did you want to uh, 
dig into that question at all. I, I think that uh, you could probably speak to that uh, regarding pairs of people or individuals that seem to contact the phenomena easier. Well, after years of uh, grappling with the same questions that John was struggling with and looking for solutions and looking for ways to interact, knowing that it did seem that they, as we studied the phenomenon, it studied us, saw the same uh, indication that, uh, you know, they knew we were coming. Uh, in my case, every time I got there, everything stopped. As soon as I left, it started again. It actually got pretty comical after a while. A lot of people said, oh, well, the property owners are uh, are messing with you. Uh, and it's their uh, way of covering hoaxes. Uh, I was pretty convinced that wasn't the case, that they were on the level, but I couldn't always prove it. Uh, but then as we got more and more sort of desperate to find something that did work, we stumbled upon the use of, uh, you know, what, what do you call them, sensitives, horse whisperers, uh, uh, people with more acute sensitivities in the whole, um, you know, ghost paranormal realm. Uh, and we found that that was a big breakthrough as far as a way to reach out to the phenomenon that we we're struggling to understand and actually coax out some uh, more unvarnished responses. You know, they, they got a little bit more, um, overt uh one of the sensitive well we, we basically learn ask permission uh if you're if you want something to happen ask uh stop with the tricks and traps and uh boy did that ever bear fruit not that we we're ever given anything we could take to the bank but we definitely got more stuff than uh we were getting previous to that and one of the sensitives even said they were really impressed that you finally decided to ask permission. One of the things you might also add in there is, and be careful what you wish for. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, again, there seems to be this genie in a bottle that you can't put the cat back on to this phenomena to where literally the words spoken and thoughts thought uh, seem to easily go out to the phenomena itself. Um, the directed phenomena out at Cottage Grove uh, is an example of that. And at the end of this lecture here, at the one hour, at the one o'clock mark, uh, maybe we'll go into more details about what's happened specifically here in the Pacific Northwest regarding a place we call the Al Moon Lab. Um, Tom, why don't we um, pass it off to you real quick here? But before I do, um, I want to thank John for uh, his time to do this. Can you hang with us uh, for a bit? Sure. I'm, I'm very interested in hearing what he has to say. Okay. Perfect. Um, again, anybody who's watching this, uh, I appreciate you coming on here. Michelle, are you with me? I think she might be on mute, but uh, we have Michelle Hi. Freed here, okay. who's the producer of Midnight in the Desert, who uh, talked John into doing something risky like this, and I'm glad he did. And Tom Powell, uh, who's been a researcher, a colleague, and a friend of mine for years now. Um, I think this is the perfect matchup, so I'm happy to have both these guys 
on board doing this. And if you guys want to see more of this, uh, let us know. You can get in touch with me at strangebrowradio at gmail.com. Also, within your little virtual world, wherever you are in quarantine, um, you'll see three polling questions there. And if you could find those polling questions and answer those when you have time, um, they're very simple questions. Uh, it's just about the future of this and how it might be shaped so we can do it. Um, I encourage you to go to Strange Brow Radio podcast and listen to all the episodes on there. Like, subscribe, and share the content because this is what we bring to you, as well as Michelle's uh, radio show, Midnight in the Desert. And um, Michelle, tell them a little bit about what you have going on. Um, well, a couple of things. We have the radio show, which is Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, this was Art Bell's show. Um, when he left coast to coast, he um, started Midnight in the Desert, and uh, he passed about Oh, we're all coming up to two years in April. Um, and we decided to continue um, his, I guess you could say, legacy. And um, we have kind of broadened uh, the topics that we talk about on the show. So that's really good. And then I'm also uh, teaching a remote viewing class um, to just kind of teach people the basic, how they can answer any question that they ever have um, and uh, do it themselves. And, um, and it's a really fun class and you can get all the details on butterflyeffectcenter.com. And uh, if you have any questions, just uh, let me know. And as someone who's taken Michelle's class, me and my girlfriend, Erin, and a couple of others, uh, we are about the fifth or sixth week uh, of doing so. Um, I can tell you that her technique works. And as someone who's totally fresh, totally green, uh, the results have been encouraging. And I'm not saying it's easy because when you're learning from uh, someone who's, uh, you know, as well versed in this as Michelle and uh, who she's been trained by, um, it takes a learning curve. It is literally working a new muscle. It's uh, it's a new craft like uh, martial arts, and you have to practice it every day. And it's something that um, I think we all have the innate ability to do. Would you agree, Michelle? Absolutely. And um, John, you would say the same too, right? We could all do this. Well, what I say is that these are human. In fact, I have a problem when we start talking about paranormal because these are really strange you know, extensions of what is normal. And I think it's like any other human activity. There are people who are better than others, but if you practice, you can improve. Absolutely. And boy, do we practice. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect um, thing to do while you're in a position like this, folks. I mean, you have the time on your hand to do something you've maybe thought about doing it and now you can reach out to um, Michelle at the butterfly effect center.com uh, correct Michelle correct okay well without further ado uh, south of me about five hours yield town Oregon Portland Oregon keep Portland weird is what they say and I promise you what uh, Tom has to share with you will definitely go in the weird category which is where we like it 
he is the author of uh, three great books. It starts out with the local, ends up with the edges of science, and of course, in between that is Shady Neighbors. Um, I should also mention before we move on, of course, from uh, John, is that uh, the book Reality Denied, Firsthand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. Again, uh, both these books are available on Amazon. And, Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we'll get, we're going to get back to that, uh, both of those subjects in a minute, but um, take it away, Tom Powell. All right. First of all, do you see my uh, screen up there? We do. All right, good. All right. Well, uh, before I get into my deal, just a few uh, quick suggestions. Uh, this is this is my copy of John's book, and it's pretty uh, sad shape, but uh, it's been uh, scrutinized pretty thoroughly, and uh, there isn't a thing that he says that I don't agree with. As far as what's going on and how is it all explained, uh, the universe included, uh, this one, I think, offers an interesting paradigm that may or may not uh, explain, well, most things that are mysteries to me. Uh, this is one of my favorite books on the UFO subject. He just died fairly recently, Jim Mars, but uh, really thorough. When it comes to uh, the, the cattle thing that John was describing, uh, this is the seminal volume by Chris O'Brien. He's in New Mexico. He's studied the cattle mutilation thing more than anyone that I have ever found. And, and he basically lays it at the doorstep of environmental sampling that uh, the cattle and maybe even wild herds are carrying pathogens, specifically, uh, you know, uh, mad cow or uh, uh, Jakob, uh, Kruzfeld Jakob, uh, but but that our food supply is compromised in the cattle mutilation thing is an indication that uh, other entities are aware of it and it may be their food supply too, suggesting that they're not from somewhere else, but they reside at least some of the time here on earth just as we do and they rely on our food supply as much as we do. Uh, when it comes to the deterioration of the uh, samples that the, the the flesh that came off that wolf that they shot at, uh, they find that when they exhume these giant skeletons in part of the Midwest, uh, the same thing happens as soon as the skeleton is exposed to the air, it, it undertakes a rapid deterioration. Uh, they also talk about the giants, uh, of course, a lot and the idea that at least historically, there was a group of entities uh, and they lay it again at the door of the trickster and so all Tom, of that. Tom, yeah. just, just so you know, what we're seeing on the screen is your cartoon. And oh, so All okay. we see with you, you have to hold the book up. All right, so where's the camera? It is my, is my uh, face showing, Toby? Or uh, What you need to do, Tom, is just hold the uh, book up a little bit higher. Like that? There you go. Okay. This is this is the last one. And uh, I know that John was also interested in this uh, crop circle business. And it is fascinating, especially the way the uh, individuals uh, who investigate this come to a lot of the same conclusions that uh, both John and I over here. This is the Giants book, just to show it to you if I wasn't holding it properly before. 
this is the best book on cattle mutilations right there. Chris O'Brien, is that showing up, Toby? Yeah, you bet. All right, good. And of course, then this, I think, does a lot of good to explain what may be going on, even uh, intergalactically. Uh, this book is, of course, uh, one of the best, and this is John's. And then right up there with John's is this one by uh, Jim Mars. So there's a suggested reading list for anybody who uh, wants to uh, uh, look into the subject a little more thoroughly. All right, well, anyway, those are my two. And uh, the second one, Shady Neighbors, is a, a novel. And it basically took 10 different people's personal experiences and, and rolled them into a single character for sake of plot. So everything happened to somebody, but not everything happened to the same person. Uh, but it's basically all of the things that I collected in the process of putting together this one. And this one came out in 2001. And I asked John when he was talking about what, what was the circa where he was working at the Skinwalker. And the curious thing was that uh, uh, this is a, he, when, when he was working there, it was essentially the same time that I was conducting my research in um, uh, West Central Washington. And as John said, the, the groups tend to be isolated from each other. And that was definitely me. I was completely unaware of the work that they were doing at Skinwalker, and yet I was finding a lot of the same stuff. Uh, so that led me to the third book, the most recent one, in which I more or less suggest that all of these phenomena uh, do have some connection to each other, and there's a good uh, amount of overlap. The big question that people always put to me is, if Bigfoots exist, why can't we prove it? Uh, and a, a very interesting answer is suggested by this uh, pair, uh, Holiday and Wilson. Uh, this book goes back a few years, completely out of print, but they find in, found in, in trying to study the Loch Ness Monster that the same kinds of thing happened that we're finding out. Sometimes it's very definitely there, and the other times it's very definitely not. Uh, if you ever find a copy of this book at a used bookstore, grab it. It's out of print, and I consider it uh, priceless. Uh, well, so the question that maybe John is kind of asking for some uh, background on and that I get all the time is, you know, what is Bigfoot? Uh, do you, you, you really believe in Bigfoot? And I don't really believe in Bigfoot. I, I don't see it as a belief or an act of faith, but rather an unanswered question, maybe even a scientific one. Whether it's a person, a group of animals, extraterrestrial, ghosts, or spirits, I guess the answer is uh, yes, <laughs> uh, all of the above. Uh, well, I think the only fallacy is, have you found it yet, being one of the questions I often have to field, and it's not an it, it's a they, and it, it does seem that they uh, exhibit um, characteristics of all of these phenomena at various times. But I think in general, um, it's uh, to me, uh, represents sort of a spirit being. And that, of course, is uh, something that uh, Native Americans have long said. This puts us into the category of the woo-woo, or woo for short, as uh, Lauren Coleman, one of our longstanding researchers, started to uh, sort of, it's a sort of semi-derogatory term, uh, but um, that's fine. I can live with it. 
the, the new word, of course, and when I say new, I think it sort of emerged into the lexicon in the 50s or 60s, and that is paranormal. Before the qu word par quick, Quick break. Are you aware that your polling thing has jumped up in the middle of the screen? Uh, I don't see yours. any. I don't. Yours. Yeah, I don't see anything on mine. Some little thing well, showed up. Broadcast is okay. coming. Yeah, from, we we, uh, we moved that away there. Thank okay. You. No, go ahead, Tom. All right. Uh, so anyway, paranormal. It's sort of a dirty word on the one hand, but it's also, I think, a word that just attempts to describe the fact that it's very difficult scientifically, maybe impossible to study this thing. So when people say, I want proof, come on, Tom, where's your proof? I say, boy, I wish I could give it to you, but it seems to defy the very nature of the phenomenon. Uh, simply because in order to prove something, we have to assemble a body of evidence, and that doesn't seem consistent with what the phenomenon is willing to give us. So that puts us on the horns of this dilemma. Are they flesh and blood creatures? I certainly started out hunting for what I thought was a, a wild ape or some sort of undisclosed creature, but no different than, you know, giant pandas or coelacanths. It's, it's just something that uh, we haven't found yet. And I definitely evolved uh, in my thinking. I don't, I don't look at that anymore. So uh, just to make a joke out of the, the, the schism that exists in the world of Bigfoot research, uh, I do have uh, several friends who are still of the belief that it's a wild ape. And, uh, and then there's those of us who see it as something paranormal. So that's the dichotomy there, the apers versus the woo. My uh, suggestion, my resolution to this conflict is you do it your way, I'll do it mine. Let's all trade notes at the end of the day and see what we get, hopefully over a beer. But we just want to share out. But, but I have no problem with people who are setting cameras in the woods. I encourage them to do it, even though I gave up on that a long time ago. Uh, the reason I gave up is because I tried to do science for uh, over a decade. And after getting nowhere, it was finally explained to me uh, by a retired CIA person, interestingly enough, who I know here in the neighborhood, and he told me, look, you're, what you're doing is not science. You wish you could do science. You're intelligence gathering, uh, and, and it's very different because intelligence gathering implies that you're taking unverifiable bits of information and then trying to assemble a picture, uh, none of the information being utterly worthy of, of the category of science. So I, basically, it, it means that I wish I was a scientist, but when it comes to studying this stuff, I'm really more of a spy. And I do what spies do, which is try to get to the bottom of a mystery uh, that may emanate from something that is more intelligent than we are. Uh, I like to use the example of Osama bin Laden. We didn't catch Osama bin Laden using science per se. If there's any truth to the ODARK 30 representation, the one uh, uh, analyst who sort of figured it out was, was going on hunches and instincts based on this unverifiable stuff. Uh, and uh, of course, in the meetings, she was frustrated by everybody wanting to put a percent of confidence to uh, something that she just felt like she completely understood but could not convey uh, to the satisfaction of her scientific-minded brethren. So really what this boils down to is this, this, this problem that science has. Science is reductionist. 
if we follow the scientific method, but holism is suggests that you have to look at the big picture uh, if you're going to assemble an accurate uh, uh, portrait of what's really going on. Uh, and then, of course, I think the, these two words are sometimes uh, not distinguished uh, and, and need to be. Uh, it's always assumed that whatever's going on comes from space. And maybe the little craft that we see are thought to be spacecraft. But is it possible, and I think it is possible, I mean, it's a rhetorical question, that these entities that we're dealing with are not from somewhere else, but rather reside somehow, somewhere, either uh, in a different, uh, uh, you know, dimension, if you want to call it that, but uh, um, it may be uh, subterranean. Uh, and I, a lot of the Indian information suggests that, no, there is a subterranean element to what's going on on the planet. And then, of course, the other possibility is this interdimensional thing. I tend to think interdimensional really uh, is, is a way of traveling. I think that the beings that we're dealing with are three-dimensional as we are in their own realm, but this interdimensional is just a way to get from here to there in much less than the usual time. Anyway, evidence versus understanding is where I am now. I've stopped trying to collect evidence because I understand that it, it is a different way of, of, of working than uh, I don't want to prove it anymore. I know that I can't, but I am more interested in understanding the phenomenon. And so that, I think, implies a very different way of approaching the uh, matter in the field. So science versus intel. Like I said, we are really intelligence gatherers. We're in a pre-scientific condition. And maybe someday we can do science on these things. But right now, all we're doing is looking for patterns and realizing that we're dealing with something that is intelligent and it's rogue. It is, it is staying out of sight. And it's not going to cooperate with, with our attempts to sort of uh, pull the uh, curtain aside and, and expose the phenomenon in flesh and blood terms. Uh, so we have to accept these unverifiable observations and also accept the fact that we're dealing with this uh, intelligence that often manifests itself as trickery. Well, when I wrote this book, I did find that um, back in the early 2000s, I was saying things that um, were radical at the time but are not radical anymore. Uh, that we were getting a DNA tissue, but it was human. Uh, I was suggesting populations extended continent-wide, that they were staying hidden, they were intelligent, but also that there were people who were interacting with the phenomenon locally, and this was a phrase that was coined by Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, to talk about their work with uh, mountain gorillas, but it's the idea that you can buddy up. And I think that's what they were doing in Skinwalker, is they're basically trying to accustom the phenomenon, whatever it was, to their uh, presence and seeing if they couldn't bring it to the fore. Uh, yeah, there's cover-ups. I think it largely the cover-ups are being abandoned these days because the information has, uh, has really, the floodgates have opened and, and you get so many people like John who are sharing information from the inside and the outside. I think the cover-ups that were once in effect are no longer um, being aggressively pursued. Uh, it does seem that the UFOs have a connection to the Sasquatch phenomenon, uh, specifically the orb business. You get people looking for Sasquatch and they see a bunch of orbs 
And there are people who say with a straight face that the orbs are a manifestation of the Sasquatch phenomena, maybe just a, uh, a, a, a different way of, you know, shape-shifting and all of that. And then finally, I did have a chapter in the locals which talked about communication. In other words, there is a line of communication with these beings. I was, it was suggested by some editors that I leave that chapter out because it, it was too radical. <laughs> this was in 2001. Uh, well, I did leave it out, but that became the, next cha uh, the first chapter in the next book. One of the most interesting things that I, I uh, ran into when I was looking into the locals was this family in the southeast corner of Oklahoma, the Humphreys family that were having regular visitations by the Sasquatch. They felt that they were stealing things out of the fridge. They were messing with the house at night, scaring the inhabitants. And so finally, one of the uh, residents got fed up with the whole thing, took a shot at the thing. It, it took off, but it left blood. Uh, the group I was working with, BFRO, tried to collect the blood. They were unsuccessful. A mysterious rainstorm moved in and washed it all away before they could get there. Meanwhile, I was working with cameras in the woods, just like John was. And again, this is 1999, so this is commensurate with his work at Skinwalker. This was one of my uh, little sets, and the little box under the bench was a car battery that powered that camera that you see dead center. And then I was doing things that I myself laugh at by today's standards, putting out apples and things and, and seeing if they got. And I was getting the food was always getting rearranged, uh, but not always taken. Uh, and I just wasn't getting the kind of results that I wanted. Well, meanwhile, I got involved with this group, Bigfoot Research Organ Field Research Organization, because I was looking for one of these magic spots where people might be interacting. I knew that Mount Rainier was a hot spot, and that's not very far from uh, uh, James Gilliland's place up there by Mount, by Mount Adams. There was a family that lived near Mount Rainier, and they were amenable to my setting trail cams. And for two years, we did various means of camera deployment in this uh, woodsy location that was about 32 miles from uh, Mount Rainier on the west side of uh, the Cascades. They had a refrigerator that was being hit, so that was a target for our cameras for a while. And I also went up there and slept out because I was told, oh yeah, the activity goes on at night. And I said, well, why don't I just sleep out? And they thought that was a pretty bold thing to do, but uh, I just felt like, oh, I don't think anything bad is going to happen. I did sleep out. It poured rain. I sat there with a camcorder in my sleeping bag under a tarp. I could hear activity activity moving around me just as promised. And as soon I pulled, as soon as I pulled out the camera, everything stopped. Uh, well, that was just one anecdote, but it was my first indication that they were on to me. Of course, being scientifically minded at the time, I just wasn't buying it, so I had to double down on our deployment. So here is one of the early uh, sets of uh, video that we were doing, and it bears a extraordinary similarities to what John was describing in the um, Skinwalker uh, situation. And as you can see here that I made these crude attempts to conceal the uh, sets in uh, birdhouses. The upper birdhouse had an infrared illuminator, so uh, I had to remove the side of that birdhouse uh, so that it would uh, shine out in the direction of the camera. And then the second camera, uh, the, the camera, excuse me, was in this birdhouse and it was looking right out through that little 
window. So we left that up there for quite a while, I mean, over a year, and then we got even more sophisticated with our camera sets and got this motion activated computer stored. You know, we had an Intel engineer working with us and he was able to do this motion capture system uh, that you're looking at a frame from right here. And there's your date 1231.00, I think. And uh, so uh, we sat with our cameras for a long time and getting absolutely nothing. Uh, then one of the big Bigfoot uh, activists in the area, Ray Crow, steered me toward the first of the psychics or the sensitives, whose name was Steve Fredericks. He told me in all honesty that he felt he had a line of communication with the beings that he had established in this place called the Salmonberry uh, River, a, 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 a steep uh, wilderness drainage on the Oregon coast. So I said, all right, Steve, you think you got it going on? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to see if you can request uh, some cooperation. So far, we've had the cameras out for close to two years. We've gotten a big fat nothing. Would you please uh, use your alleged power to ask permission? I didn't tell Alan and April that I was doing this because I wanted it to be sort of a single blind experiment. Neither N knew, Steve Fredericks didn't know where the um, location was specifically. He did say, I want to drive around the general area, but I don't need to know the place. So I gave him the area of Onalaska, Washington, west of Mount Rainier, and he took a drive around there with his sister. And Alan and April knew nothing about this, but within uh, 48 hours of Steve Fredericks trying to tender a request, I got a call out of the blue from Alan and April saying, hey, we just got some really decent video. And so I said, I'll be right up. I jumped in my car, drove 100 miles, and this is what was waiting for me. Not, <laughs> not exactly something that's going to rock the world, but what you see here is a shadow moving left to right across the uh, screen. It's really only three or four frames, and there you see that it, was, it happened on uh, December 30th. Uh, anyway, we were very encouraged because this was the first time we got something, even though it's not a very good something. It does kind of look like a head and shoulders of something moving across the screen. But the point is we got this within 48 hours of asking permission. And uh, Steve Fredericks, I, I did not tell Steve Fredericks that we got any uh, results. But I did go back to Steve Fredericks and say, Steve, uh, we need to do another experiment. Uh, I want you to ask for a bone. And Steve Frederick said, oh, they're not going to like that, Tom. Well, he did. And uh, here, let's stop that. Uh, and within 48 hours of asking for a bone, again, through this sort of uh, logging on to what I like to call the coconut telegraph, Steve Fredericks tendered the request. Uh, and he... Uh, said, oh, they didn't seem too interested, Tom, but I did submit what you asked. I did my best. 48 hours later, Alan and April call me and say, we just found a bone at the base of the camera tree. So I jump in my car and I drove up to Mount Rainier and this is what they handed me. It's about the shape of a coffee saucer, a little bit more oblong. As you can see, it's very thick and it's very porous. So I took this to a wildlife expert and he said, that's definitely a bird bone, but I don't know what kind. And it doesn't seem like 
you could have a bird whose head would be that big, but it kind of looks like the top of a skull. So I kind of researched around for a little while myself, and then I took it to a, a fellow down the road for me who raised emus. And on instinct, I showed him the bone and said, might this be part of one of these odd birds that you raised from New Zealand? He pulled out a reference text and he found that it perfectly matched the breastbone of an emu. So I took it back to Alan in April, said, are there any emus around here? Alan said, my dad raises emus five miles away. I said, well, what does he do when the emus die? He said, he throws them in a pit out back. I said, is there any way an emu bone could get five miles from your dad's place to here? And he said, well, not that I'm aware of, but at least uh, we do know that there are bones somewhere in the vicinity. Finally, Alan and April decided after two years plus that we were done with the project. They were getting indications that they were being monitored. Their phones were being tapped, all this usual stuff. So they said, we want to get on with our life. And I said, that's okay. We've been doing it for two years. I'm ready to stop. Uh, at that point and only that point, I told Steve Fredericks about the pictures and then the bone. Steve Fredericks, upon hearing about the bone, said, well, he hit himself in the forehead with his hand, and he said, you know what, Tom? I never specified what kind of bone. Uh, I just said we would like a bone, but I never said one of your bones. Of course, it's sort of arrogant to expect that these creatures would dig up one of their brethren and give us their, one of the bones, but it was one of the indications of this trickery. Uh, they, they were dealing with something that has a sense of humor, uh, just as John uh, described in his work at Skinwalker. So here were my conclusions, and this is where I put together the edges of science. I said, <laughs> we're definitely dealing with paranormal entities. It cannot be studied scientifically, and it does seem that they connect to other phenomena because we're getting things that other field observers are describing. Uh, Ron Moorhead likes to say, if you, if you haven't had electronics disabled, you haven't been doing it very long. He said it's a real commonplace occurrence in the Sasquatch game, but here John is describing it with the cameras on the pole and skinwalker. John described this uncomfortable vibe. That's a commonplace situation, even with people who uh, don't even expect that it's a Sasquatch around them. All they knew is they felt this horrible vibe and they needed to leave the area. Uh, you get the repulsive odors associated with the Sasquatch thing, but even people who study crop circles, ghosts, and so on uh, do report this same strong odor. And it seems like even when more than one person uh, experiences the odor at the same time, they describe it very differently. Some people say it's dog poop, other people say rotten eggs, other people say rotting garbage. It seems like everybody describes it in terms of the worst smell that they've ever experienced. So it seems like what's happening here is, is a certain button in our brain is being pushed, and that is a really repulsive smell that makes you sick to your stomach. Uh, as John described, and as I found repeatedly at Allen and April's, it's like they knew when I was coming before I got there. As soon as I slammed the door on my car, everything stopped. As soon as I left, things would resume. They knew about our cameras, and they were averse to them. Uh, one of the things that Allen's wife, April, had, she was walking the property one day, and she heard words very clearly saying, quit trying to trick us. 
when she described that to me, I knew that it was a reference to our cameras because by then we were moving the cameras from place to place around the property as the phenomenon would shift its location. Every time we put the camera somewhere, it would stop. So uh, there is no doubt in my mind that they know cameras and that they're averse to them. Uh, and uh, of course they had other phenomena at Allen and April's place. Uh, here's a good one they had. They, they had a, what they called a ghost train. They had an old logging railroad grade that went through their property. Tracks were long gone, ties and everything torn up long ago. Every once in a great while, a train would go down the easement or the, the old railroad right of way uh, and with such force that it would rattle shift uh, 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 plates off their wall. <laughs> uh, they got the telepathy, quit trying to trick us and, and come out and play. Their daughter would get it the most. Uh, they, they, she would get woken up in the middle of the night with these uh, directed messages that were pretty benign, just kind of come out and play. Uh, we want to see you. Uh, and we were certainly getting uh, indications that it was all intelligently directed. So. Here's a list of things that I think uh, most paranormal researchers can um, agree, with, agree with, at least in part. Now, here is one of my go-to guys. This name is Henry Franzoni. He's been studying the Sasquatch really aggressively since the Peter Byrne days of the late 70s uh, and uh, very aggressively into the 90s. So all three of these people are Henry in different uh, points of his life. This is his book, and he draws heavily on Native American stuff. And here's what Henry Franzoni has uh, confided in me based on his decade upon decade of uh, investigation. He says they emanate from underground. They have to. Uh, these stick structures that we find just are are not in any way the kind of shelter that you would think that they would need. Uh, there must be an underground element to what's going on. They may have caves that go there, but they don't need them. They can move through solid matter. They are telepathic with all organisms. They, they can take control and knock you cold if they want to. Uh, Henry likes to say they move between frame rates, which is sort of a reference to, you know, movie film uh, that, that if you speed up movie film or slow it down, then of course the, uh, uh, the way you perceive it is different, that, that they're moving between vibration rates. They can go invisible and they can shape shift. Uh, they're very skilled at logical principles. They're ultra efficient at using available resources. They have a complete absence of our environmental impacts. If, if they are representing a, a earthbound population is very strictly controlled. They are masters of deception and acute uh, in their sense of humor. Well, so those are some conclusions that not only Henry shares, but they also come from a lot of Native Americans who basically saying that for years. And then you go down to Shasta, uh, kind of the West Coast center of paranormalism. And you get with the people who are looking for Lemurians and things that reside under the mountain or under the ground near the mountain. And again, they come up with the same kinds of things. Uh, this is one very shamanically oriented uh, individual that I know, Alyssa. She now lives in Utah, but she lived at Shasta for a long time. She has two books. One's called Influenced, and the other one's called Spots of the Fawn. 
And it basically references these power spots on the landscape. Alyssa's really well read and she put these books in front of me and I did my best to digest all of them. But the main things that uh, came from my contact with her are these uh, ideas that there's a fine line between science and spirituality. Uh, spirits need us as much as we need them. Uh, these power spots, of which Skinwalker is no doubt one, but uh, Alan and April's being another, and, and my property on the Clackamas River seems to have what you could call a vortex. It could be a wormhole. It could be a portal. Uh, Alyssa calls it a spot, um, a spot of the fawn. Uh, and not only are there these highly charged power spots, but it's also very important that your presence there in some way interacts with these things. So the way they're described by Alyssa and a lot of other people, and feel free to jump in here, John, uh, high EMF readings. Uh, you got water and spring, underground activity. They're often seen as sacred sites uh, by uh, Native Americans, but even in Europe, you know, the Neolithic structures and the cathedrals are all built on these ancient power spots. Uh, but places like Shasta, Eseti Ranch, and so on uh, are, are these things that we now start to see as power spots. But Alyssa would emphasize it's your consciousness is also an important part of what's being um, happening there. Which brings us to our basic conclusions. And that is, uh, as John was describing, every time you took Jesse Ventura or anybody else there, everything dries up. Well, what's, that, what's going on with that? Well, Freddie Silva, who's a big crop circle um, guy, he wrote, this book if it's showing and he says you know it just doesn't happen on demand spirituality is not a circus act uh and i like that idea real well uh henry franzoni says i can tell you what bigfoot is i can't tell you what bigfoot is you have to figure it out for yourself if i told you you wouldn't believe me <laughs> i like that uh another quote that sort of chimes in there are things in this world you're not supposed to know <laughs> and i think uh john was uh hearkening at that a little bit with their uh uh experiences it's it's uh skinwalker even jesus said well you know you know it only it, it's only for you it, it it's not as as freddie silva said it's, a, it's not a circus <laughs> and Alyssa would say the only proof you're ever going to get is personal experience you can have things happen to you. You can sit there at Skinwalker, Allen and April's or wherever for months. You will have a handful of experiences over those months as John described, but you're just not going to get something that you can take to the bank. Uh, and it harkens of this idea of alchemy from uh, what, 17th, uh, 18th century. Uh, this idea that when you want to make uh, uh, mercury into gold, it's a combination of science and spirituality. Uh, that consciousness is making things happen. It's you being there that is, is part of it. And, and consciousness is something that exists outside the brain. The brain inside your body is responding to directions from consciousness and consciousness is, is something that exists outside the body as do your memories. Uh, therefore, your memories can be accessed by other sentient 
beings. And this, I think, helps me at least understand how these things can know that we're coming, how can they know what we're doing, uh, and know what we're planning even before we do it. Uh, because thoughts and perceptions uh, from outside your body do direct things that happen inside your uh, body, even at a cellular level. Uh, memory, as I said, exists outside the body and is backed up in the brain, and consciousness outside your body can make things happen. And I think that that, to me, is a big part of what the Sasquatch and uh, some of these other uh, phenomena are, are doing by way of, of uh, changing uh, the world and uh, shutting us down and knowing that we're coming, so on and so forth. It just won't perform for your friends. Uh, well, these are some of the uh, people who uh, weigh in heavily on this. Uh, as uh, John, of course, already said, he's buddies with our guy Jacques Vallée, but here um, are some other people who go into this stuff uh, in a big way. Uh, this is one of my favorite guys, Graham Hancock, uh, and he's uh, a, a big uh, advocate of this kind of stuff. So back to this, the Goblin Universe. Look for this book if you can find it, but it's basically what they're saying too. You get things that are moving in and out of our world. They're not going to cooperate with our agenda to get videotape. Uh, but they are sort of uh, maybe trying to usher humanity into a higher uh, consciousness, a greater awareness, a greater respect for our surroundings. You know, now I'm going down the eco rabbit hole. Sorry about that. But one of the things that uh, people do get who are trying to communicate specifically with the Sasquatch is a concern for our environment. One person that I know who was trying to do the telepathic contact with the Sasquatch said, well, if you give us evidence, we can take it to the world and we can show that you exist and therefore we can help uh, maintain your, uh, you know, we can preserve you as a species. And the answer that she got back was, we don't need any protection. You're the ones who are in danger. So I thought that was a little bit cogent. <laughs> Uh, so, the Goblin Universe, it's the menagerie of entities that uh, visit our existence. Sasquatch are perhaps one of the most conspicuous members of the menagerie. Uh, they are watching us as, as though we are animals in the zoo. Uh, and their role is, in some form, heavy lifting. They might have had something to do with these uh, uh, ancient uh, Neolithic structures, pyramids, you name it. Uh, they uh, do, I think, observe and report to higher powers, and they are under directions to stay out of sight. One of the um, attempts to communicate through another sensitive named Bob Faust, uh, we asked, can we see you? Can, will you let us see you? And the answer from the entity that was presumably in our immediate environment was no, it's a rule. I've never been seen by you people and I'm not about to screw up now. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that's not allowed within um, their culture, society, or, or whatever it is you wanna uh, call it. So I, I think that for the most part, when people do have sightings, they are more deliberate than people realize. They are more directed than people realize. They are not just matters of happenstance and so on. Uh, put all this together, what do you get? 
the earth is alive, is generating these phenomena for our edification. There are intelligent beings that probably reside within the earth who come and go from our world. I mean, after all, subterranean could be another dimension, you know. We inhabit sort of two dimensions of the world, uh, forward, back, side to side, but we really don't in inhabit the third dimension very often, uh, that is the subterranean realm. Uh, but it does seem that there are beings that can move through these realms into our world. And what this all says to me is that these um, phenomena overlap. Uh, and like I said before at the beginning of this uh, speech here, the, these are phenomena that seem to be common to most, if not all, of these uh, paranormal areas of investigation. So there you go. Uh, and it's more or less attempted at uh, uh, summarizing in, in the edges of science, but I do understand that people who uh, haven't really experienced some of this for themselves go, man, Tom, that's just too messed up. I get it. <laughs> uh, the skinwalker is a Navajo term. It, it basically means um, these malevolent witches. Uh, and one Navajo person told Henry Franzoni, here's how you tell where there's Sasquatch in the area. Count the trees on your way down the trail and on your way back down the trail. Count the trees again. You will get a different number. And that's because the beings can um, represent themselves as trees. But there are other manifestations of the Sasquatch phenomenon. And here they are, uh, the giant skeletons probably being the uh, most interesting and uh, uh, surprising one that just thousands of these things have been exhumed over time and if you want to know more about that this is the book right here okay I think I'm sort of there so thanks for listening and uh, now I guess I would love to hear uh, what John uh, how much of this stuff John agrees with but the one thing that I think John Keel used to say back in the 70s is when you study them they study you and when John Keel was looking into the UFO world back in the 70s uh, that was a big uh, uh, conclusion that uh, occurred to him all right there's your cliffhanger and if you want to hear the rest of this I believe there's another hour available and you can find that at patreon.com forward slash strange radio so here's how this is going to work, folks. December 1st, the show is coming back as season one, and there will be four episodes per season. I'll announce the future dates, but the next episode you'll hear, if you're listening to the show as a regular listener and a not a member, December 1st uh, will be the winter season, and then I'll give up the extra dates after that point. Now, with that said, there was something coming your way already in the works November 17th, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. There will be a three-hour show for you and everybody else in the world who wants to watch it. It will be a Zoom connection, again, with Ira Wolfnison and some guests. The entitled webinar coming forth is The Connections Observed Between Alien Abductions and Mystical Experiences. Now, if you want to watch the show, you got to go to the Strange Brow Radio Facebook page, and there it will be streamed live and then uploaded to the YouTube page for the members. But we will have the regular show available uh, as it's streaming, but it will be archived for the members only. 
So you want to you want to definitely catch that because uh, Ira is an experiencer, an abductee. She has been taken, uh, as well as um, well. I shouldn't say she's been taken. I'll leave that up for her to to phrase. But scheduled also, we do have people that have been taken. Now some of them call themselves experiencers, uh, or this is some kind of mystical experience. But others call them abductions with experiments. And so we're going to have that, uh, you know, polarity of issues here. I always want to be able to, to have that back and forth. So, again, November 17th at the Zoom webinar on Strange Brow Radio Facebook page. And it will be uploaded for the members as a video and audio content so you can find that there as well. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, especially during this holiday season. Go check out our sponsor, Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N at Etsy.com for alchemy sound tools, museum quality, functional, working. God bless her for the amount of work that she does making these beautifully handcrafted, hand-honed uh, hard to explain. You got to go see them for yourself at Etsy.com. Uh, fantastic spirit tools by Aaron Jackson at Feral by Aaron. And I got to get Aaron on the air more with us and especially talking about her work and all that goes into it. Because I, I see it here on the property and have even assisted a couple different times on a couple different projects, including a, a Sasquatch drum that we diff- recently did as a commission. So, again, that's Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N, at Etsy.com. And then I have my own Etsy store in the making here for my new revised, revamped Wood Watchers, realistic Sasquatch heads that you can have in your she shed or man cave or anywhere in between. And no, these are not nasty homages to a headhunter instinct. These are mid-cloaked Bigfoots punching a hole in space and time and peeking into your living room. That's what I mean by that. So I don't need the Sasquatch version of PETA on my case. No, 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 no. So if I don't see you in November, I don't see you in December... I don't see you at Patreon, then by golly, I better see you in the tree.